Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. We, uh, John and I wanted to talk about a problem that we are seeing with criticism of the Supreme Court that is really rooted in claims to uh, illegitimacy uh, that, uh, that we think are unhinged, if I can, uh, I, I don't want to speak for you, John, but I think, I think th- these criticisms are based on untruths in, in many cases, and I'll, I'll give you an example here in a minute, and I'm sorry to say uh, that, that one of the, uh, the prime examples of this has come from my alma mater at the University of Chicago, Professor Aziz Huck, uh, who uh, was not teaching there when I was a, when I was a student, uh, but is there now and has been putting out a pretty steady stream of vitriol against the, uh, the current uh, Supreme Court uh, and his, uh, his, his latest uh, piece. And I think this was in the Chronicle of Higher Education and it's, it's uh, co-authored with John Michaels from UCLA uh, Law School, uh, tries to, to take the court uh, to task and suggests that law schools have a problem because they have tried to develop a kind of reflected prestige, John, from their association with, with the Supreme Court. So they brag about the number of law clerks they have. They invite justices to campus all the time, et cetera. And uh, excuse me, he's making the claim, Professor Huck and Professor Michaels make the claim, uh, that, uh, that essentially this is a, this is a problem because the current Supreme Court uh, has gone so far to the to the right that uh, that that this uh, this prestige is no longer kind of warranted and that the law schools by associating themselves with the court are in some ways legitimizing this illegitimate court that I, and, and he doesn't he doesn't use that those words exactly but that's what he's that's the that's the gist of the argument. Uh, what he does say is that law schools must grapple with the question of what counts as prestige when a very different Supreme Court espouses views that track a particularly extreme, unrepresentative political ideology. And and, and it's crazy because you know why we have Supreme Court justices come to Georgetown and everything else? They have interesting things to say, and it's educational. And I have never been in the presence of a Supreme Court justice at one of these things where I didn't learn something or have some insight. I just was at Sotomayor, came over uh, to, to one thing. And she, she and I don't agree on everything. It was interesting. It's interesting for the students. How about that? How about that? Just that. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're bright people, right? They, they wouldn't... Uh... Uh, I mean, we might have had a mediocre one appointed back in the 1970s. I seem to, seem to recall uh, some discussion about uh, uh, a particular nominee back then. But uh, these are these are by and large bright folks who are interesting uh, to hear from and have a point of view that, you know, frankly, John, even if you do, don't agree with or don't find it interesting, it it matters because they're voting on a lot of important things when they when and voting is the wrong term. But when they when they uh, when they decide how to. Uh, you know, how to what the results are going to be in these cases. Uh, it's not voting in the sense of, of the ballot box, but it's uh, 
their views of these things matter. And so learning what those views are, are important for among other reasons, because if you disagree with them, you need to know what they are so that you can argue against them and persuade them to change their views. But my particular, uh, the reason I'm particularly upset, and, and John knows this because he has followed me on, on LinkedIn, and some of you may follow follow me on LinkedIn as well, is uh, th there's some untruths in this article that uh, uh, that, that Professor Huck and, and Michaels uh, have uh, have uh, have based this article on, and so I want to I want to really dig into that uh, here, and then maybe in the next segment, John, we can talk more generally about this this problem. But my concern, and let me just let me read what he says, and then I'll unpack it because there are lots of untruths in this very short paragraph in the piece. But he says that the reasons for this sharp turn are hardly unknown today. Five of nine justices are appointees of presidents who lost the popular vote and of Senate coalitions that represent a minority of the country. All five are Republican. Along with Clarence Thomas, all are aligned with the influential Federalist Society. Acute political polarization in which Republicans have moved more sharply to extremes than Democrats means that when the GOP appoints a disproportionate number of justices, the resulting decisions are very likely to be far from the ideological center. Now, I, I've pointed this out in, in other, uh, end quote, I've pointed this out in other contexts, John, but no one was complaining about the disproportionate number of justices appointed by the GOP when uh, David Souter was one of those appointees uh, and, and when, uh, uh, oh, I mean, early on in Souter's uh, appointment, Justice Brennan was still on the bench, who was also a GOP uh, appointee. So they, they don't, it's not exactly the fact that they're appointed by GOP presidents that has Professor Huck upset here. I'm sure he was fine with, with Souter and Brennan. Uh, but, but the particular, uh, if you didn't pick up on it, let me go back and unpack what, what's dishonest about what he's saying here. He says, five of nine justices are appointees of presidents who lost the popular vote. Well, how do you get to five of nine? Well, you have to include, the only way you get to five of nine and say that they're, that they're all Republican, there's only six Republican appointees on there. Clarence Thomas was appointed by the first uh, president, President Bush, who clearly did win in a landslide, in a landslide in 1988 over Michael Dukakis, so he's excluding him. Although then he has nasty things to say about him later, but but exclude him from that. So he's he's saying that all five of the other appointees are of presidents who lost the popular vote. Well, I would remind listeners that President Bush won a majority of the popular vote in 2004. Now he did not in 2000, but he didn't but, appoint any justices. But he didn't appoint any justices. He he appointed. Uh, he may have appointed some lower court judges, but no justices. And in fact, you may recall, John, Justice O'Connor, there's there's been talk. I don't know that she said this publicly, but there's been talk in D.C. that she held off, that she was planning on resigning from the Supreme Court. But after Bush v. Gore, she felt like she couldn't because she didn't want to be seen as having voted that way and then be replaced by, uh, you know, have her seat on the court replaced by by someone who she had just uh, voted uh, to uh, that they had won the election. Uh, in, in Bush v. Gore. So she, um, so she held off and didn't retire until after the 2004 uh, election in which Bush won a majority of the popular vote over uh, John Kerry. And yet Huck is, uh, and then in 2005. And the Senate, I believe. Uh, I'm not, I don't recall, uh, that, but I think the Senate the, as well. The Senate was, 
so the, the, the argument he's making, John, yes, the Republicans had a majority of the Senate at that point, but the argument he's making is about the popular vote. Right. So if you take all the popular votes cast for all the Republicans Got it. and all the popular votes cast for all the Democrats, that may not come out the same Got as it. as the, the split because they have this whole problem with the fact that that uh, that every uh, you know every state gets two seats in the Senate. Got it. But anyway, the, the point is that he's using the fact that Bush didn't win the popular vote in 2000 to lump his 2005 appointee, Chief Justice Roberts, and his early 2006 appointee, Justice Alito, uh, as folks who uh, were appointed by presidents who didn't win a majority of the popular vote. That's just dishonest, John. I mean, there's no way to, there's no other way to, to slice that. He's, is it true that Bush didn't win a majority of the popular vote at some point? Yes. Is it true of the point in time when he appointed these two people to the Supreme Court? No, it's not. So it's just dishonest. And then uh, if you want to get into the, the three appointees of, of President Trump, I would just uh, point out that, uh, uh, that shortly after uh, Amy Coney Barrett was, uh, was appointed, yes, Trump, Trump did lose uh, that election. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I think that what he's suggesting is that there's a uh, popular vote legitimacy that matters in a way that the electoral college doesn't matter. And that's not our system, John. Our system doesn't, it's not a popular vote uh, driven system. He also says Republicans have moved more sharply to extremes. I don't, I, uh, I'm not sure what he's basing that on. I, that's, I, I think that if you want to say that both parties have, have moved away from the center, that, that there's good evidence of that. But to say Republicans have moved more sharply, I'm not I'm not sure that that's uh, that that's correct. I'm not sure what he would be I, pointing to. I, I don't even agree with you there, Mark. I, I think that the Republicans have not moved sharply to the right. It's just that the, the left has continued to move. I mean, certainly on same sex marriage, as we just saw, certainly on spending. I do not think the Republican Party has moved to the right. And on a number of issues, I could point this out, but I can't think of one issue other than um, uh, protection of uh, 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 Congresswoman's husband's trades, where the uh, where the Democratic <laughs> Party has moved to, uh, for closer to the right. They've all moved left. I mean, I, I I don't I don't like to give that credit credence either that that idea either, but. Really, what we're what we're talking about here, you've pointed out that, but the guy who wins the presidency, this was the whole point of Mitch McConnell. What did Mitch McConnell say? He said, I'm holding this um, this Scalia seat open because the next president, I'm telling you, every American in the country, that whoever the next president is will appoint the replacement for Scalia's seat. It was an electoral issue. It's polls say it. it turned like 20% of the vote cared about it. The majority of those people who voted on that issue for a guy they probably wouldn't have voted for otherwise um, put that seat in play. So it's it also misapplies what actually happened. This wasn't happenstance. The very fact that that seat was at issue was one of the reasons that Trump won. And so it it is it is more ill considered when you consider it was an electoral issue and the electorate with spoke, high salience, high salience and the electorate spoke on it to say that it's more illegitimate than somebody like um, Kagan 
right? Who I think is a good justice. You know, she's my favorite. Uh, but but Clinton, uh, excuse me, um, Obama didn't say who he was going to appoint or what kind of judge he was going to appoint or anything. It was all catch as catch can. And, and so I think that that was an electoral issue. It was very clear to the electorate. And it's... We'll come back with more on this topic right after this. We're back on Administrative Static talking about the Supreme Court and attacks on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and, and the lack of, uh, I guess you'd say, representativeness uh, on the Supreme Court uh, compared to the electorate as a whole. And, and one thing, uh, John, about this uh, this uh, article from uh, that, that I was talking about from Professor Huck and Professor Michaels that was uh, uh, that was in the uh, uh, that was in the Chronicle, the, the title of the article is Law Schools Flattered the Court's Power, Now They're Caught in Its Rightward Tilt. So if folks want to check out that article, I don't recommend it. But, uh, but one of the other points that they, uh, that, that they made uh, is by saying today, and referring to today's court, they were specifically talking about the post-Briar court, because in order to make the point that all of the justices appointed by uh, by presidents who didn't win a majority of the of the popular vote, in, in order to say that all those Republicans, they have to be talking about the post Breyer court because the court Justice Breyer was appointed, I think, in 1994 by President Clinton, and I believe Justice Ginsburg was appointed in 1993 by President Clinton. And you may recall, John, in 1992, President Clinton got 43 percent of the popular vote, so he was a long way from getting a majority of the popular vote. And by the way, he didn't even win a, uh, an absolute majority of the popular vote four years later in 1996. Clinton never won a majority of the popular vote. So uh, he came very close. It was 49 point yeah, something exactly. the, second, the second time around. Uh, but uh, by Huck's logic, Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg were also illegitimate uh, appointees uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, to the Supreme Court. Now, that's him talking, not me, uh, but uh, or his logic talking anyway. But he he ignores that. And, you know, the other thing that bothers me about this, John, is he's he's writing this in the Chronicle of Higher Education. So, you know, who he's his audience here is primarily people in higher education, not lawyers. So he's trying to pull the wool over the eyes and, and sort of feed the, you know, feed this uh, this kind of argument into the academy amongst a group of people who may not be equipped to understand the the, the, the sort of uh, half truths that he's baking in uh, to his argument and, here. Yeah, and as for as far as reason goes, Mark, <clears throat> was the intellectual analysis and jurisprudence of Breyer or Ginsburg or uh, or, or who, who else or or any of these justices was it affected by the popular vote? Their their analysis and their no. how they're judged no. is how they write and whether or not they're consistent. And like um, uh, Roberts, right? 
I understand that he is often criticized. Have you heard this? Uh, I might have criticized him myself. <laughs> a time or two. Exactly. But he's, he, it doesn't matter. It, none of this popular vote matters. What matters for all these justices is have they created uh, an area for themselves? And are they respected in how they write about that? Right. You have you have Breyer, who we all talk about his questioning and all this, but he also does things. And his multi-part test. his multi-part test, right? We're always going to remember that. But he also has uh, administrative law expertise that he used in his case. That's going to be talked about. All these things are going to be contributed to, not whether the popular vote, it doesn't matter. And the, the Well, and the fact that it doesn't matter, I mean, Huck shows actually that it doesn't matter because he attacks Roberts and Alito on this basis, even though Bush did have a majority in the popular exactly. vote. Exactly. And I think about this all the time in that Lincoln did get the popular vote. Okay. There was a split in the Democratic Party and there's all kinds of strange things going on in 1860, right? But I think divine providence, I think, in that case. Uh, exactly. I think we're all pretty <laughs> glad he replaced Taney, he replaced all the judges uh, who did Dred Scott, and he did it all with his minority vote <laughs> originally. And as for this, you know, people always say, well, these states have small populations. And all those square states were created explicitly so the South didn't rise again, right? That's They were explicitly created by the Republican Party as fast as they could get them so that they would they would change the outcome. But but if you if if you care about these issues and you don't want to either ignore the Constitution or go through amending it, all he has to do is get behind expanding the House. We did it every year. All, Every 10 years, except like we stopped in 1912, they could expand the House three times. All the big states would get more votes. You'd have a very, very hard time for the popular vote to be different from the electoral vote. And we could all go home on this issue. But no, they. I think they want the issue to criticize the outcomes of these justices, because I don't really think they care about the popular vote. You don't think that they want more members of Congress? Well, I don't think they, if, if they... I don't know how anyone feels about that issue, but it was done forever. It's an easy fix. I mean, it does take legislation, but it doesn't take constitutional amendments. It was a normal thing in this country for hundreds of years. Sure. And there are places in the in the world that have larger uh, legislatures than 435. That's not the well, New Hampshire. <laughs> so New Hampshire has something like 400, 500. Every every 10 guys gets a representative in New Hampshire. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, back to the back to the article. I mean, Professor Huck uh, is also when when he avoids including Breyer and Ginsburg in his uh, in his analysis by talking about today's court. It's also disingenuous because all of the decisions that he's talking about are decisions that were that were handed down when at least Breyer was on the court, and in many cases Ginsburg uh, as well. And so I just think. Uh, but 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 we were going to talk about not just this article, John. We we're going to talk about this sort of wider effort to undermine uh, the Supreme Court by the Academy and what we're seeing, what we're seeing here. Uh, and I agree with you that that this uh, the idea that there should be popular uh, legitimacy based on based on the popular vote uh, is flawed. But the other the other thing that seems to be bandied about here is that somehow the Supreme Court should take the temperature of of the populace or something. And you, you see all these articles written about uh, the percentage of, of people polled who think this or that based on whether they agree with what the Supreme Court did on, in a case or not. But the whole point of the Supreme Court, it's a counter-majoritarian institution, right? I mean, the point of the Supreme Court is it's supposed to be upholding individual rights 
even when the majority isn't willing to uphold individual rights, right? That you, you don't need the Supreme Court when the majority is upholding everyone's rights. You need the Supreme Court when it's when the majority is not upholding everyone's rights. You need the Supreme Court to step up and do its job when Korematsu is being thrown into a Japanese internment camp. Of course, the Supreme Court failed in that case, which is why it's one of the most disgraceful episodes in Supreme Court history. And, and everybody on that court was appointed by a guy who got huge landslides four times. Right. That's right. <laughs> Named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And, and yet they were not able to uh, to do the right thing in, the, in that instance. So. Uh, so, so to me, the idea that we judge the court and the court's legitimacy based on the consistency that they have with what the what, with what the majority is just misunderstands and misconstrues the role of the court. Now, that's not to say that the Supreme Court should always be uh, handing down decisions that are the opposite of what the people think. But when you're when you're talking about the case of individual rights it's often going to be the case that the court is standing up for rights that the majority does not want to uphold. Well, well let's hope they're constitutional rights. In other words, it, oh, yeah, they right. should be judged by, by what the Constitution says and its history and text. And, and if they're not doing that, then they're not doing their jobs, no matter how many votes their president got. You know, if, if, if Trump had gotten 60% of the vote, I, I think this guy would be more upset, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it would be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, what do you think of, of this argument that that the uh, uh, that the law schools somehow have uh, have a problem because of reflective well, prestige well, report? Well, I think this is the idea that the law firms impart um, uh, uh, prestige to the justices rather than the other way around is hilarious. It is hilarious. Only a law professor could come up with this idea <laughs> because, you know, I mean, if the justices aren't that well known, I mean, the law professors, come on. And so the law schools, they do have, they are shaping, they, they shape the next generation of lawyers. They shape judges. There's no question they have a, a large, uh, I, I'm, I'm joking a little bit uh, and, and sort of lowballing their influence, but a justice of the Supreme Court, whoever they are, unless they're a complete disgrace, uh, it, it, uh, had have they bring they bring prestige to the organization. The organization doesn't bring bring prestige to them. That's right. And if it, look, if the top fourteen law schools want to disassociate from the Supreme Court, I'm sure that that those school. And by the way, why it's top fourteen? I don't know. There's no other place in in life where we talk about the top 14 of something because the they stayed the same so long is that what it was okay uh but i, I find that odd but in any event uh the uh i'm sure that that school's 15 through 25 yeah. since georgetown's whatever. 14 i'm gonna keep it on the... <laughs> we're not shrinking that we're list, not shrinking that list. <laughs> but i'm sure the other schools would be happy to have supreme court justices come i'm sure they would be happy to send clerks to the supreme court etc what, what are we going to do at the georgetown constitution center if we listen to this guy <laughs> Yeah, that's a good, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, so I, uh, you know, I'm I'm not concerned with with this reflected prestige, a quote unquote problem. I don't think that that that's that that's the case at all. Uh, and I think that that as you said, John, the the quality of the opinions is what's ultimately going to be the proof of the pudding for for this court uh, or for the court if it changes constituency uh, again. Right? We have Justice Jackson now. Yep. She hasn't. She hasn't been involved in any cases that we know about. One case. Oh, one case. Okay. Yes, she just joined. She just joined this week. I'll I'll break this news. She just joined with the um, the three liberals 
Uh, she, she, she is one of those three liberals now, but she was joined by Amy Coney Barrett um, opposing the immigration decision that the court made. It's, it, it's an interim one, but it's, it's Judge Jackson's first weighing in since she became, and it's a dissent. But I, you're absolutely right about that. And how about when um, Breyer and Scalia would go to the law schools and debate? Together, yeah. How great was that? Sure. And, and whoever was in the minority or the majority, you would want to see that sort of thing. I mean, it, it, what? We don't, oh, you, you can come, Justice Kagan, but don't bring that, don't bring that Thomas guy with you. Come yeah. on. Well, and, and it's been a logical fallacy for as long as I've known about logical fallacies, an ad hominem attack. And that's what this is. This is an ad hominem attack by a law professor against justices of the Supreme Court. And that's, that's you know, make a real argument, please. Tell me why you disagree with their jurisprudence. Don't make these bizarre arguments about why they are or are not impediment based on two of them.